Listener Production. When Melissa Leong tastes her food, everyone pays attention. Not only are the MasterChef judges' descriptions elegant and evocative, but the very way she savours the eating process makes you feel part of the experience. When it comes to food, there isn't much Melissa Leong hasn't done. She's edited a cookbook, emceed food events, presented on radio, been a food and travel writer and a food media consultant. She's the first Australian woman and the first person of colour to hold the role she does now. And the juggernaut of MasterChef has catapulted her to a whole new level of fame. A self-described introvert, Melissa has a complex response to the media and public's attention on her clothes, her relationships, her life. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Helen Smith joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with the incomparable Melissa Leon. Melissa Leong, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me, Jamila. It is so lovely to have you here. I am a massive MasterChef fan and also generally a very big food fan, food enthusiast. (laughs) And I want to ask you if Melissa, when she was a kid, knew that she'd be doing a job like she is now, how would she have felt about it? Would it have surprised you? Look, I thought I was going to be a classical pianist until I was probably 16 or 17. I genuinely thought that that was what I was going to do. So no, I don't know that I would have believed you. I mean, I would have thought it was pretty cool, but um, no, my head was very firmly, um, you know, in the pages of classical music at that point. So um, yeah, it would have been wild though. (laughs) You were born in Sydney to Singaporean parents, but with Chinese ancestry, I believe. Yes. Tell me about your childhood. I always hate the phrase growing up between cultures, but, you know, a lot of us do grow up between cultures to an extent. Tell me what your childhood was like. Absolutely. Look, it it sounds, I guess, like you you hesitated and I would probably hesitate if I was in your position too, because it is, it's a strange thing where um, this migrant experience, you know, being first generation born or, or maybe even being born overseas, but growing up predominantly in Australia, Um, there is this schism that happens where Mm. we have our culture at home and then we have our culture pretty much everywhere else. And we learn to code switch between um, both of those things. And so I very much remember when I was probably about eight years old, trying to articulate and imagine an eight-year-old trying to articulate this to a parent, um, trying to explain the, um, the disconnect and the discomfort that I felt between who I was at home with my family and who I needed to be in order to fit in at school and, and, you know, pretty much everywhere else, all my extracurriculars, et cetera. So the, the crazy thing is the more I think about it as I get older, you know, both of those identities are a hundred percent who I am. Mm. And so consolidating those things into the one and understanding that, um, while feeling divided, it is unified within yourself. Um, I think that that is a lifelong journey of exploration with, for everybody, you know, and it's different for everybody. Certain people might, um, approach, 
how that feels a little bit differently. And I, if I'm honest, I still, I still battle with it a lot and I still feel the grief of letting go of certain parts of my culture in order to fit in here. Mm. And I don't by any means resent growing up in Australia. I love Australia. This is my home. I don't know any other. But um, there are parts of what we've had to give up in order to be Australian as well. And I think that it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge that. Yeah, we all experience it in a different way, right? Like I, I am also a kid who grew up in Australia with parents who weren't from this country. And, you know, certainly I watched my dad put his culture, his religion, his country of birth, he put it all away in a box. And that word assimilate, which isn't used so much anymore, and I think that's a good thing, well, that was his aim. Assimilation was his yeah. aim. And, and I think he, he didn't want to put the, the burden, I suppose, of having come from a country that was quite unlike Australia onto his kids. I feel like I'm grasping here for that Muslim Indian culture that I didn't get a lot of as a child. And I, I feel sad that I didn't sometimes. How do you hold the two cultures together when you're in such a public-facing role? Because there still aren't a huge number of people of colour in prominent positions in the Australian telly landscape. You said it. Um, You definitely said it. Um, Look, I wrote a story for, I I have a a column uh, in Stella magazine, and I wrote a story about that topic. And my mum actually called me a couple of weeks later after having read it, it was an unexpectedly deep conversation because she called to apologise. She said, I'm sorry. And I said, what are you sorry for? And she said, I'm sorry because I'm afraid I taught you how to do that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which makes me quite emotional to think about because she, she arrived here in the 70s with my dad and um, I did not know for a very long period of time at work because my mother was a was a, an RN um, and then eventually moved on to be a, a nursing unit manager and a hospital administrator, but she um, never spoke anything other than English at work for years. You know, she just wouldn't do it. And then there was an emergency um, several years in. The patient only spoke Cantonese. And she remembers standing there and the words stuck in her throat. I mean, she speaks fluent Cantonese, Mandarin. She now speaks Vietnamese and she also speaks Hokkien and, and Bahasa as well. Like she's a, she's, a, she's a proper polyglot. And she just said she could feel the words stuck in her throat. She could not at work allow herself to speak the languages that she had learned. And then someone else had to rush in and, and you know, facilitate. And she remembers feeling like it was a betrayal of her identity, that she was not able to communicate with this person who also spoke the same language as her that wasn't English. And um, I really think about how painful that must have been for her and how deeply vulnerable she would have had to be to call me and apologise for teaching me to tuck my culture away in order to get ahead. Yeah. And looking on surface value right now, you know, where I am, what I do, I have to ask myself, did tucking away my culture get me ahead? And that's a really screwed up question to answer for myself. And it's still something that I think about a lot. I am just stuck on your mum having 
not just in that moment reacting, but having over so many years to push down a part of herself at work to the point that she couldn't pull it back out again in the moment because she was so used to masking, I suppose, masking so that she fit in with a mostly white community and, and denying a part of who she was for safety, really. That's it. You know, she used to say, I mean, look, think about how tragic this is. She would bring sandwiches to work. I'm like, why? <laughs> now, I love that from a foodie. It's the most <laughs> tragic thing. Why? Why would you do that when you could bring noodles or you could bring rice or you could bring yeah. anything else? And she did it because she didn't want to have the stinky lunch that people would turn their nose up and go, well, what is that? She wanted to fit in, fade in, you know, assimilate. As, as your dad says, um, she wanted to be accepted. And as a result of that, there was obviously a big chunk of her life where she was not able to fully be who she is. And isn't that a sad thing? Because you and I both know that that is a common experience for so many people. What does it feel like now when you're being nominated for awards and receiving a level of acclaim and fame that is is really significant. I imagine you're not walking down the street without people recognising you anymore. What does it feel like knowing that you are one of the few? Look, it, it did not occur to me until I was nominated for the Gold Logie last year that no woman of colour had ever received it. Yeah, right. And that only one person of colour in the history of the award had won it, which was obviously, um, you know, the incredible Walid Ali. And I still grapple with that because I love this country. I love being Australian. Um, and being Australian is so many faces, so many cultures from so many places, including the ancient one that's right here. And for us to not see that represented on screens does affect the way that we feel about ourselves. So, you know, I took this job, I'm not going to say took this job for a higher purpose or anything, you know, facetious like that. I took the job because I knew I could do it and I knew I'd do it well and that I would learn things along the way that would hopefully allow me to be better every single day and that is something that I pursue every single day is to be better. Um, So I love this job. Um, So the, the fundamental parts of it, I love it and I know how to do it. And um, that part's great. The feedback, the resonance that has happened since I went on air, however, um, is another layer to that job. And so when people say to me, hey, it means something that you're there, how can I dismiss that as being, oh, that's just, I don't care about that part of it. Of course I care about that. Of course it means something to me that it means something to other people. And representation, you know, we keep saying that phrase representation is crucial, but it really, really is. And um, and I'm very proud to be now one of many, um, not enough, but many, and um, and hopefully we see that change. You know, I, I always like to joke with, with friends of colour that we all know how to play the long game because we do. And it isn't really about the individual per se for, for almost all of us, I would imagine. This is, yes, about how we survive and how we create dignity in a public capacity, but it is also about what we do for the collective. The long game is a collective game. Food has long been a way that we've been able to share culture and share celebration and family. So much of the joy of food is not 
in the smells and the tastes, but it's in the rituals and the sitting down together and the community and, and who you share it with that makes it so special. I think if you ask the average person to tell you about the best meal of your life, there are a few people who would talk about a meal that they had on their own. Most of us would discuss something that was a shared experience. Yeah. And I do think MasterChef has been a place where we've all been able to see these contestants on reality TV, contestants who are from a shared culture, who are first, second, third generation Australian. And MasterChef has been a process of discovery for them and for the audience. I'm interested to know why you think reality TV around food works because food is about taste and it's about smell and I can't do those things through a television and yet (laughs) I constantly watch. I watch every season. I think that part of it is because we're all slightly masochistic and we just love to suffer because we can't experience what we're seeing. Um, I, I definitely think there's just a, there's just a hint of that going on, and we love to live vicariously through through other people's experiences. So, the great joy of my job is to use words to convey aroma, sensation. Um, experience and that's why I push hard every single day and and I know Doc and Andy do as well to to really bring the audience into the MasterChef kitchen and help them feel like they can almost taste the food, smell the food, experience what we're experiencing. Um, That's our literal job yeah um apart from obviously to judge it and to to be the framework for these incredible stories of of people from all over the world and I I must say it makes me very proud to be part of a show that has always celebrated diversity you look at the contestant makeup every single time and it's a different mix of people from all over the world and the stories that they bring and their perspectives on particular recipes and we all know that you know depending on where what what the dish is and and where it comes from in the world there will be every family in every region in every village in every town arguing that their version is the best or their mum's version is the best and I think that there's this beautiful um, sharing of of those dishes that means so much uh, to so many and so to be able to kind of feel connected through food in that way is why this show continues to uh, to survive and, and not only survive but thrive because there are infinite stories that connect us as humans yeah. and um, and it does equalise us in a way. We can disagree about lots of different things and we can certainly agree and disagree about, you know, which one's the most delicious. But in terms of it meaning something to us personally, uh, that's something that we all share that's really powerful. I feel like as well as being a judge, you are this proxy for the audience in the sense that you're doing the tasting that I can't do (laughs) and I'm watching this show and you're tasting the food so well not only because you speak about the food so beautifully and evocatively but you you also taste it really well and I, I need to know do they teach you to do that is there a tasting food on screen talent school you know, it was really funny. I went along with a joke on a um, on a radio program, I think first year, so it would have been in 2020, and they said, just, hey, just, just go with the bit. And the bit was that I practice eating in front of a mirror. And then, of course, all the shitty tabloids out there took that as gospel. Well, like she does that for real, yeah? She sits in front of the mirror to practice eating. I said, I know, I know where my face hole is. Oh, God. I know where it is. 
I've known for quite some time where to put the food. Um, so the, the, I mean, look, you know, this job that I have is so odd and people are going to make up shit about you that um, my boyfriend always likes to say, you can't bark at every car that drives past. So I'm not going to correct the narrative of every single ridiculous thing that people want to make up about me. But the whole food thing, like it's just we know how to eat, right? The only tip I have was that a producer um, once said to me, you might want to take a slightly smaller bite. And I went, noted. And um, and that was back in, back in the day when I was on SBS and you have to realise that maybe half a bite less might be slightly more palatable for other people to watch you eat and that's it. <laughs> Do you freak people out when you show up at their cafe or restaurant? Do you see a look of panic in their eyes? Look, I don't like to make people feel uncomfortable because I am an introvert and I'm, I'm a chronic overthinker. And so I, I don't like to make people feel uncomfortable. So I'm not going to lie. I, I go to a lot of places that I know the people. So it's a friendly experience for me and for them. And, you know, my local coffee shop, you know, all of, all of that. Um, I've had the, the great fortune of working in the food industry for many, many years now. So more often than not, I know most people. So there isn't that freak out that people imagine people must have. But obviously I don't know everybody. And so if I do go into a new place, if I'm checking out something new that's opened and I don't have any personal connection, there is sometimes um, a sense of trepidation for me and for them, you know, because I don't want people to feel uncomfortable that they've just opened and, and it's a bit early. They think it might be a bit early for me to be in there. So look, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, it's not like I walk down the street and people, you know, um, I'm instantly recognisable. I'd like I like to joke that I blend into anywhere where there are other Asians. Yeah, largely it still works. You know, I can still walk down Burke Street and it's fine because I just you know get on with it. Tell me if I'm wrong here, we met all of 20 minutes ago, but you mentioned you were an introvert then and you talked with what felt like a quiet joy about being able to blend in and not be recognised. Does fame sit comfortably with you? Nope. (laughs) No, it is not. Um, Look, I accept that it is a side effect of doing my job well and I take my job seriously and, of course, I want to do well. So if that's a side effect of it, then I accept it. Um, But I don't revel in it and, yeah, it's still, it's, it's taking some time to sort of be okay about it. I think I'm getting better at just being matter of fact about it. It's just, yep, some people are going to know who you are. Um, That's good and that's bad. I've had both. It's, it's nice to be recognised and, and for someone to have a genuine conversation about something that matters to them that they know matters to you. That's wonderful. I love that kind of connection. And then there are other people that want to use you or want to, you know, take advantage of what it is that they can, um, that I could do for them. And that doesn't feel so nice. So, you know, I think there are lots of kids out there who, you know, I, I speak to my friends' children that are like, oh, it'd be so great to be famous. I'm like, oh, hun, if you're not doing something that really lights you up, then it's a very shallow experience because it doesn't really feel very different to being who you are every day. It's just that you do it a bit more publicly and that 
isn't necessarily always fun. Does that make it harder to make friends and meet new people? Do you have to always be slightly aware? Yes and no. Um, Obviously, lots of people want to be a friend and that's wonderful. Um, You know, I I like to always give people the benefit of a doubt that it's a genuine connection, but you do need to think about it sometimes. And for me, um, like you said, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed introvert. I love that about me. I'm, I'm very happy with me being me on my own. Yeah. So if I am going to have friends in my life, then I want those relationships to be rich. You know, I want them to be full of meaning and and for them to be mutually beneficial. You know, it has to it has to flow backwards and forwards. And you know, our, our friend, our our mutual friend M. Rasciano. You know, she's um, she's a brilliant person like that. You know, she doesn't need to be friends with me. I don't need to be friends with her. But we're friends because we just want to be and it's obvious. Um, And so, and we don't need to speak every day in order to feel connected, but there's no bullshit. You know, when she picks up the phone or I pick up the phone, it's straight into the detail. And, um, and I really love that about her. And and so I, I, I seek meaningful connections with people. And I think the older I get, the, the better I'm able to listen to my intuition about what the connection is and how genuine it is. And I learned to back away with respect if it's not going to be something that I see uh, is real. You said at the beginning of our conversation that as a kid, you thought you'd grow up to be a pianist and you strike me as someone for whom that would have made sense. (laughs) Uh, You're very deliberate, very focused. Even the way you talk about your work now, we all care about doing a good job at work, but it seems like that sits very heavily for you that you have to deliver, that you have to be at your best. Yeah. What relaxes you? Where do you find an escape from that pressure, both the external and the internal? A couple of things. Um, I am a chronic anxiety rewatcher, so I will constantly replay like a series that I know is like really long, like real long or like epic movies that go for three hours that I've seen before I know what happens and I'll play it in the background. Yes, oh, my sister is one of them. I do not understand it. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I just, um, it's not even that I'm present within it all of the time, but it works. It's very soothing for me. Um, the other thing that I do is listen to, I am I'm one of those true crime people. I'm so sorry, but I could listen to podcasts about Jeffrey Dahmer all day and it does not phase me. Um, and so that kind of thing, again, I feel quite soothing. And then honestly, in public, the last time I felt the most relaxed and the most um, sort of relieved of anxiety was that I went to um, to Perth to see UFC um, live. I would not have picked that. Um, my partner's really into UFC and and you know, most chefs are, so I've always sort of been aware of it, but actually going to a UFC event and being in um, ostensibly a darkened room with 15,000 strangers yelling bloody murder at at the octagon, um, I've got to say it was really cathartic and I had the best time ever. So, um, yeah, there you go, UFC. (laughs) I am Literally lost for words, which is a good thing because we've come to the end of our time together, Melissa. Thank you for sharing so honestly today. I'm such a fan of MasterChef and I was really reinvigorated in my love for the show when you came along and joined. You made it more interesting and more enjoyable to watch again. And I am so looking forward to the next season. 
It's going to be amazing, by the way. So, um, so stay tuned. Um, but thank you so much. It, it means the world to me to, um, you know, to be welcomed into the MasterChef family and to know that people think that I'm doing an, a, a pretty good job of holding the um, the baton for this particular leg of the race, so to speak. So um, it it really is um, never lost on me. So thank you so much. That's it for my chat with Melissa Leong. MasterChef returns to our television screens on Channel 10 from the 1st of May. Make sure you don't miss it. Don't go away either because Helen Smith is jumping into the hot seat and we're going to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to on The Weekend List. It is Weekend List time. Welcome, Helen Smith, who's jumping into the hot seat and she's going to save us some money today because that's what she does best. Yeah, so my first recommendation is an app called Hopper. It is for hotel comparison prices. I think it also does like trips and things like that. You can compare, but I'm just using it for hotels because I'm going on a trip soon and hotels are so expensive. Like it's wild. And this app has saved me so much money and it's just amazing because if you don't compare it, like I was looking at the prices on the website of the hotel and other places and it's so much more money. So I'm saving a bunch. It's really good. Definitely recommend it if you're going on a trip. It's called Hopper and yeah, just such a bargain. If only everything in life made us all as happy as a bargain does you, Helen Smith. I love that. I am going to recommend an umbrella, folks. Bear with me. Bear with me. Uh, It's been very wet. There's been a La Nina situation going on and I feel like we're heading into winter and it's going to get cold and windy and rainy again soon. And having a good umbrella is a really important thing. And I have had the same brand of umbrella for like five years now. I swear by it, but I have not wanted to recommend it because the brand name is Suck. S-U-C-K. That's felt weird to recommend on a podcast, folks, but now I'm doing it. So it's by Suck UK, UK is in like United Kingdom, but UK, um, they make all kinds of different umbrellas. They fold up really neatly and small in your handbag. And I think the thing I love about the most is they're all quite plain and simple on the outside, like blacks, greys, whites, but the inside, like the bit that you see is really colorful and cool. But the most important bit is they open and close really well. They don't get broken. And even when I've been in really, really windy, horrible, rainy places, they don't do that horrible inside out thing. And so you can just relax a little bit because I get anxious using an umbrella. I don't know why I get anxious, but I do. That is honestly the most embarrassing thing when your umbrella goes inside out. It gives me the the wildest ick. Like I hate it so much. Um, But yeah, my second recommendation is a Netflix three-part doco series right now. It's called American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon Bombing. So it's about that Boston Marathon bombing that happened in 2013 and it's done so well. It's really interesting and it's such a wild story. It goes into the two brothers who planted the homemade bombs and it's really fascinating to see how the police and the authorities and the government kind of reacted to the situation and how it all unfolds. I definitely recommend that one if you're into a good doco series. I'm loving it. And so that's my second one. That sounds fascinating. My 
final recommendation, folks, is something to cook this weekend. As I said, it's getting cold. So I have been in the mood for soup. And this is a recipe from Recipe Tin Eats, which is the blog name. And she's also part of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald now. The chef's real name is Nagi Mayahashi. And she has just put out a recipe for a 20-minute laksa. Now, she has an incredible laksa recipe that I have made before, but it takes tastes forever, you guys. And there's so many ingredients and I love it, but it's the sort of thing you make once a year because it's so much effort. This is 20 minutes and it's about, I reckon it's about a dozen ingredients, maybe less. And they are the kind of ingredients you can get at your local supermarket. So you don't even have to make the extra trek to the Asian food store. This is simple, easy stuff. And I reckon it tastes pretty close to as good. Uh, it's a 20 minute laksa, 20 minutes, folks, 20 minutes. And it's as good as you'll get at most shops. Um, there are delicious prawns, the taste, the smell, it will make your kitchen feel warm and cozy. Uh, you can find it online through Good Food, The Age or The Sydney Morning Herald. That's all we have time for at the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being with us. I say it every week, but I really mean it, everyone. I very much enjoy having your company and we really appreciate you listening to the show. If you want to get more of the briefing, you can download the listener app and follow us there, or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're hanging out there in the subscription following kind of place, you could pause, hang around for an extra few seconds, drop us a five-star rating and a review. You could say nice things. It would make my day. It would make Helen's day. It'd be a really generous thing to do. You can also catch us every morning, bright and early, Mondays to Fridays. Tom Tilly and the team always have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.